list in this second letter of the Corinthians, starting with verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to do this, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Free, free, forever we're free. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through, God, through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. We pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I have a little bit of an embarrassing truth to admit today, but I feel like the best thing I can always be is transparent, honest, vulnerable. And that uh, I was thinking, you know, it's Joe Kane Sunday. I'll have a few less people. I don't have to put as much time into my sermon. I can just kind of get up there and wing it. You know, as communicators, we can just, we always, they say we have a sermon in our back pocket, right? You're always ready to preach. And and I was actually going into this week thinking that because my attention um, was elsewhere, I will admit. I was following the Twitter feeds earlier this week during general conference. I was doing, there's lots of other work going on. And I was like, okay, it's Joe Kane Sunday. I don't have to put as much time into my sermon. And about halfway through the week, Holy Spirit conviction happened because the Holy Spirit does that, BTW. Um, just the, Holy, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a real thing. And I had this conviction about whenever in scriptures, in scripture, whenever it says that Jesus left 99 for one. You remember, he said like a shepherd would leave 99 sheep to go find the one lost one. And how what kind of pastor am I if I'm like, oh, I'm only going to preach my best whenever the most people are there? Truly, if somebody's willing to show up to church on Joe Cain Sunday, those are the people who are committed. You know, those are the people who are desperate for Jesus. And so I apologize that I had a moment of humanity, of human weakness that made me think y'all don't deserve, you know, me to put in this. Extra. And so I decided, you know what, what can we do that'll be a little different this week? What can we do that'll be special in this time together? I, Anytime we have a standalone Sunday, a Sunday that's not part of a series, we typically preach the lectionary. Most Sundays in our festival service, we always preach the lectionary. We do series oftentimes in here, but we are between series. We just finished the one about King David, about all the people who supported David, the untold stories, and we're about to move into Lent, which is a, you know, a season, a seven-week season. And so we have this one Sunday here in the middle um, that we come to the lectionary text and ask God, what is your word for us this morning? And that passage we just read is assigned to us by the lectionary, this three-year cycle of texts that if you read through it, the whole thing, by the end of three years, you'll have gotten through most of the scripture. It's not all of the Bible. They leave out like the imprecatory Psalms and a lot of Song of Solomon doesn't make it in there. But um, it gives you a chance to tackle scripture, to come to scripture that you might not often 
And this scripture is a little different, right? It's not some narrative style that's telling us this great story. It's a, a defense argument by Paul to those who are trying to infiltrate the church he has founded in Corinth. Um, so I would like for us to set up this text, talk about it a little bit, and then I want to tell a bunch of stories. Because I normally tell like one story, or we just use the Bible and talk about the whole story you know, the entire time. But I've got a number of different stories I want to tell this morning about this scripture and the things that God is revealing to us in it. See, Paul was a founder of churches in the first century after Jesus passed away. He was not one of the original apostles. He came to faith later after a major conversion. There's a great conversion story in Acts you can read about, about how Paul came to be a Christian after being a Jewish leader who persecuted Jews. But he was a planter of churches, but he was not the only leader for Christians, for early Christians in the first century. Um, there was also a guy named Peter, Maybe you remember him as one of Jesus' apostles. Jesus even said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And Peter and Paul did not agree on everything. Oftentimes when we, think, when, when we hear that Paul talks about false teachers or false prophets, we think he's talking about like non-religious people. Today we think of like false prophets as, as other religions or atheists. But really, um, these were Christians who just saw things differently. They were trying to, to speak into the churches that Paul had founded and said, well, y'all are doing it this way, but, but our leader Peter says it's like this. And, and you can't be wishy-washy about it. You either follow Peter or you follow Paul if you're a Christian in the first century. I mean, it's, it's like, we have these kind of same allegiances today. Either, either you watch Jimmy Fallon or you watch Stephen Colbert, but you don't watch both. You can't be, a, or you're either on team Katy Perry or you're on team T-Swizzle, but you can't be on both, right? You can't support Taylor Swift and Katy Perry. It doesn't work. It just doesn't. So, so Peter and Paul had their allegiances. They had their followers. And you either followed Peter or you followed Paul. And so when people came into the church to try to re- help people rethink what Paul had taught them, Paul writes back with, with some very, very um, scathing remarks at times, but very emphatic about, no, it has to be this way. And the main beef, the main issue they have is about the use of um, the law and really the, the place in which Jewish practices, um, what, what, what role Jewish practices have in Christianity. Paul was very much, because if you believe in Christ, there's no need for the law anymore. You don't have to do these Jewish practices. We, we follow the law. We, we don't have to follow the law. And Peter said, well, Jesus was a Jew and Jesus followed the law. And so therefore it has some meaning for our life too. And so there's these kind of diverging ways to come to Christ and to be a Christian. It's either we don't need the law at all anymore, we don't need the Jewish practices, or you still need them some, at least a little bit, if not even like to start there and then go to Jesus. And that was the main rub between many of the early Christians. And so the interesting thing is the New Testament, um, we have a lot of Paul in our New Testament, but we also have two letters from Peter. And it wasn't just that they excluded Peter's thoughts. It's that let's continue talking about what this means and how do we understand our Judeo-Christian faith. But we have Paul this morning. We have Paul's perspective. And here's what he's telling us. He is telling us that there were a time in which when Moses went to talk to the Lord, he had to cover his face. He had to veil his face because to see the glory of the Lord could kill him. He had to veil his face. And he's saying, no longer though do we have to do that. There's no veil between us and the Lord. Just as Jesus tore the veil of the temple when he died on the cross, so too is there no veil between us and God because of Jesus. 
Jesus gives us full access, full understanding, full relationship with God, and we don't need the intermediary. We don't need this veil. Paul is going out of his way to say, you know, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taking away. All who would unveil, all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and they're transformed into his image. The Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Paul is very much trying to say, you can have a relationship with like the one true God because of Christ. Christ is making known to us that which was previously unknown. That's kind of the crux of it. Through Christ, God is revealing things to us that we did not previously know. And as Christians, we believe that God is still doing this. As Wesleyans, we talk about it through the the frame of the quadrilateral, that God is revealing God's self to us through scripture, through reason, our church tradition and our own experience. This morning, we're experiencing God in worship. We talk about those and read about God in the scripture. We, God is continuing to reveal things to us because none of us know all that there is to know about God because none of us are God. And so God continues to speak to us, unveiling things, unveiling the truth. And that's where these stories come in, a few stories. All these stories are parables by a guy named Peter Rollins. I've used his parables a lot in my, in my sermons lately because he's got a whole book of them. And um, I was telling too many personal stories. And so I've been trying to find other sources. And these are so good. <laughs> these stories, I'm, I'm encouraging you, they're short stories, they're short parables. But they, I think parables communicate, the reason why Jesus used them, they communicate truth that simple facts can't. They make us contemplate reality that is hard to explain. It's hard to put into words. And so this first story is about a guy, or it's about a group of people at an Irish pub in Ireland. So a while ago, um, there was this group in this pub and, and there was a big crowd gathered each night and people would visit from all over the world. They would visit this pub and they would, um, you know, they listen to music, they drink, they dance, they have this, this, this merry good time. And, uh, oh, and by the way, Peter Rollins is an Irishman. And so I've like got his Irish bre- like voice in the back of my head. So I hope to not like accidentally try to put on an Irish accent. Um, and so what, what happened though, one night there was this group of, of people that were not from Ireland that were playing this game, kind of making fun of, you know, taking advantage of these local Irishmen. And there's this American who's observing the whole thing. And she was kind of appalled by what was taking place. What they would do is they'd invite this Irishman over. They'd do like one Irishman at a time. They'd invite him over and they'd be like, hey, hey, all right, we've got a question for you. Would you rather have this old wrinkled paper five pound note or like a $5 bill or would you rather have this shiny solid one pound coin? And the Irishman thought about it for a second. And he'd take the coin and he'd see it like gleaming in the light and then he would bite it to make sure it was real. And he said, I think I'd rather have the coin. And they said, okay. And he'd leave and they laughed. And they laughed. They thought it was so funny. Like, these guys, they're, they're so dumb. They don't get it. They, they just thought it was the funniest thing. So they did it over and over, tricking these Irishmen. Eventually the night ends and these people go away. And this American woman goes over to the Irish people and says, Hey, what's, what's the deal? Are y'all, do y'all not understand like money? Like you do know like five pound note is worth five times the gold coin, right? And they said, well, of course we know that. But if we chose the note, they'd stop playing the game. <laughs> you see, everyone participating in the whole endeavor knows the game is not real, but they don't know that the other person doesn't know, does not know that it is real, is not real. Everyone knows that this is not truth. This is not reality. 
But as long as nobody says anything, everybody keeps playing the game and goes along their way. They're just fine and happy. I feel like as people of faith, we often do the same thing, especially people in church. We, we continue saying and thinking that we know all the things we should know and do. We put on a, a false self of belief. We wrap ourselves in comfortable beliefs. Beliefs that maybe our parents taught us or our Sunday school or our pastor. And we don't question those things because to do so is discomforting. We, we have a lot of our identity wrapped up in our beliefs. But if Jesus is the unveiler of truth, then we have to assume that God is always working. But for some reason or another, and, and I'm very much a part of this just as you are, we're, we're not comfortable telling other people that we're struggling with our beliefs. As long as we keep all pretending that the game is legit and that we have it all figured out, then, we, then everything keeps being comfortable. We never have to experience the, the discomfort of doubt. We never have to wrestle with scripture. We never have to wrestle with our beliefs. I remember the first time I went through this when I was in college, like doubting something that I had originally thought was true and thinking this was... I, was, I felt guilty about it. I felt my parents aren't gonna love me anymore because I'm thinking differently about my faith. But really, I was growing deeper into my relationship with God, which helped me understand more about who God was. But it was scary. It was disheartening. It was discouraging. But I knew in that struggle, God was there. And once I admitted that to other people, like, hey, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a pastor. And like the scripture says, this is about being a pastor but I don't like wearing ties and my whole church is always, you know, you have to be in a robe and I, I had not done contemporary worship at that point. Like, you know, what, I, I don't think I can be a pastor. And somebody goes, well, you know, there are other ways to be a pastor. You don't have to always have on your bow tie and your robe. Hence my rain boots today. It's okay to question your beliefs and it's even more okay to tell somebody else that you are because when we do that together, we admit that this false reality we've created it's not the true place to live, but that when we come together to struggle and to ask questions and to, what does it mean that, that Moses failed his faith? We can learn so much together. We can learn about more of who God is despite the discomfort it might create. Which reminds me of a little field mouse who is in love with a little squirrel in the lonely forest. The lonely forest is, is a place in Ireland that's not real, but it is a place where all these great fairy tales happen. And there's this little field mouse who was a good fella, hard worker, went to work every day. He, he, he did his job very, very well. Um, and he was in love with this squirrel. And, and he asked her one day, he said, do you love me? And she said, of course I love you. I've loved you since the day we met. I love you this very day. And I'll love you until the day that I die. He said, oh, okay. Well, the thing is, this field mouse had trust issues, pretty insecure, didn't believe the squirrel when she said this, no matter how hard he wanted to. And he was at work one day, and he was acting real mopey, and his boss came over to him, and his boss said, hey, what's wrong? You're normally very happy. You're normally really excited. What's going on? And he said, I'm just not sure if my girlfriend loves me. And he said, well, have you asked her? He said, yeah, I asked her. And he said, well, what'd she say? He said, well, she said that she's loved me since the day she met me. She loves me this very day, and she'll love me till the day that I die. And he said, oh, well, there you go. That's, that's all you need. He goes, yeah, but I just, I don't know if I can fully believe it. I don't know. You know, I've got trust issues. I'm insecure. And he said, oh, well, there's this lake 
in the middle of the forest. If you go there and you drink from it, it's called the Lake of Truth. If you drink from this lake, you actually hear the thoughts of the people to whom you're talking. He said, oh, this is a great idea. I'll totally do that. We'll go on a picnic. And so they did. The next Saturday, they went on a picnic. They had this great time. And he said, I'm, I'm parched. I'm parched. I'm going to grab a drink from the lake, okay? And so he drinks from the lake. And he looks up at his girlfriend. And he asks her. And he says, hey, I just got to ask you one more time. And I, just one more time. Do you love me? And she says, of course I love you. I've loved you since the day I met you. I love you this very day. And I love you until the day that I die. And he could hear her thoughts. And in her, in her thoughts, that's exactly what she was saying. She thought the same thing that she was saying, that she actually did. She thought she loved him. She could hear it. He could hear it in her mind. Well, a few weeks pass, and he goes back to work. Um, and then one day, he just doesn't show up. You know, he goes back to work. A few weeks pass. Everything's fine. And one day, he just doesn't show up. When he comes back the next day, the, the boss says, hey, you didn't show up to work yesterday. That's not like you. What's wrong? He goes, I'm just really down. And he said, oh, did something happen at the lake? Did you, did you, were the thoughts not what they were supposed to be? And he said, no. He said, well, did you ask her? Did you, drink the, did you drink the water and did you ask her? And he said, yeah. You know, what did she say? She said that she loved me. She said she loved me from the day she met me. The love, she loved me this very day. She loved me until the day that I die. And he said, well, well what's the problem? Well, it turns out that, that she had another boyfriend and that he, he wasn't the only boyfriend and he ended up you know, not staying with her. Um, that she ended up not staying with him and, and went with this other field mouse who had a shinier coat. And, and he said, well, what was wrong with the lake? Was it broken? Was it, did it not work? He goes, no, it, it worked. She told me she loved me and, and, I, and I heard it in her mind. The problem was she just thought that she loved me. She didn't actually love me. You didn't get the punchline, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I didn't deliver it well. It's not a joke as much as it is something to think about. We are really good at tricking ourselves into thinking we think something we don't actually think. Oftentimes we create beliefs in our mind that are not played out in our actual lives. We like to create worlds that, again, add to our comfort, but also trick ourselves into thinking um, that we're doing things we're not actually doing. I bet, I bet Garrett could tell us plenty of examples in the, in the fitness industry. This is my, I didn't know Garrett you'd be here, but, but I was thinking about like when I first wanted to start getting in shape, I would tell people, you know, I'm watching my diet, which meant like I was literally watching what I ate, not like being careful about it, but I was watching it. I would have, you know, five guys for lunch, hibachi for dinner, a pack of Oreos for dessert. Oreos always make it into the story. And I was convincing myself, yeah, I'm watching, I'm watching my diet. And, you know, you know that to get into shape, diet and exercise, two best things, right? Diet, exercise, diet, exercise. Well, I you know, started saying, I'm being more intentional about it. I convinced myself I was doing the things I had to do, but I wasn't actually doing them. In my mind, I, was, I totally believed I was on this track. But whenever the scale never went down and my clothes still fit the same way, I had to say, am I actually doing the things that I believe I'm doing? Am I claiming something that I'm not actually really living into? How many of our beliefs about faith work that way too? I've been in churches where we say the Apostles' Creed and at the end of the Apostles' Creed, you say, I believe in the resurrection of the body the life everlasting. That resurrection of the body is not about Jesus, it's about us. The way that creed was written was that one day we will experience bodily resurrection. That you, there's lots of scripture about how we will be raised in bodily form in some way. I don't understand how that works. I don't understand what your body's gonna look like. Don't ask me those questions. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that there's something in the scripture. There's things in the scripture that talk about bodily resurrection. And then after we said the creed, we sing the song, I'll fly away. Which goes, one glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To a land on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. 
And my New Testament professor in college was the first person who made me realize, like, those two things don't actually go together. Those beliefs, they're not, they don't agree. They don't align. And it's not that I'll fly away is a bad song. I still play it at nursing homes all the time. But I'll fly away, assume some disembodied soul leaves this earth and goes off to some spiritual realm and that everything else is temporal and not lasting and it's gonna go away and your body doesn't matter and the earth doesn't matter because there's a home for us in glory and when we die, our souls are gonna float up and we're all gonna have harps on the clouds. And that's not exactly how the Bible talks about it. The Bible said God is bringing heaven to earth and that there will be bodily resurrection. And so it's amazing how sometimes we don't even realize that our beliefs, the things we believe, we can have multiple beliefs that don't even make sense together in our own minds. And I had four stories. I'm going to skip over to the last one. I'm going to skip over the last one, the, third, the fourth story. I'm going to skip the third story because I just looked at the time. I've been up here too long. There's this um, world. Imagine this world in which, is I'm going to the last story. Yeah, the, no, yeah, that one. That's a gavel, but you can't see what it is. That's a gavel. Imagine this world where Christianity is illegal, where Christianity is outlawed. And imagine you're on trial. A judge has brought you into the courtroom and there's a jury there and you're on trial and they're trying to determine whether you're guilty of being Christian or not, whether you're guilty of being Christ follower. And at this trial, they have all this evidence. They have your Bible chalked full of notes and about how you've written about you know, the things that you, you underline. They have your journal where you've written prayers and some poems, maybe even some music about God and how great God is. They have some recordings of you giving a devotion at your work. You gave a devotion at your work. Or maybe you came on stage and gave a witness, a testimony one Sunday. You know, they build this case against you, the prosecutor does. And you're just sitting there, quiet. There's part of you that wants to like deny it all. You're like, no, 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 that's not me. That's not me at all. But you don't do that. You stay quiet because you believe in Christ. You believe in Jesus. And then um, after the prosecution rests, they ask you, do you have anything to say for yourself? And you stay silent. No, got nothing to say. Evidence speaks for itself. And the jury leaves to deliberate, and then you're sweating when they come back, because you could get life in prison. You, you could be sentenced to death. The jury comes back and gives the envelope to the judge, and the judge reads it and says, on all these charges brought against you, the jury finds you not guilty. And your fear and terror turns to like anger and rage. Like, not guilty? What do you mean not guilty? Didn't you see my Bible? I had, I had an underline. And the judge goes, well, that just shows you know how to read. And he says, well, well, didn't you see my prayer book? Didn't you see these prayers? He goes, it just shows you're a nice writer. It doesn't show anything about following Christ. He says, well, well what about those tapes you watched? I gave a devotion to my work. I preached at my church. I say, well, it's real nice that you can talk real pretty. And he says, but, but we're not concerned with, with people who just know how to talk and write. He said, what we're looking for are Christ followers. And we know that they will be known by their love. And there's nothing in your life that indicates that you are a person who shows love to those who are lost. There's nothing by your actions that show that you actually follow Christ. You might believe in Jesus. You might believe in Christ. You might believe in the Bible. But there's nothing from your life outside of your, your membership in your club that shows that you understand what it means to be a person of love. 
Now, this story is not me trying to say you shouldn't read your Bible, you shouldn't go to church. I think all these things are important to help build up our lives. But if somebody were to put you on trial and look at your actions and look at the way you treat others and look at the way you care for your family, would they say this is a person who's obviously a Christ follower because they sacrifice for others. They give of themselves. They show mercy, hospitality to the stranger. They reach out to those who are hurting. They care about those who are in need. There's plenty of weeks I can look back on all seven days and say if I was put on trial today, I would not be proven guilty as a Christ follower. So this veil that Paul talks about, that Christ reveals, takes away from our eyes, sometimes I think we put it right back on. And the veil we put on is the comfort and security of just believing things, of just creating a world that makes us feel comfortable. We're not really willing to to push that veil. We're not really willing to question what that is because it creates discomfort. We really don't wanna pull it away because if so, then we actually have to do something. We have to live our lives in a certain way that is hard. To be a Christian, to be a real Christ follower is difficult. We have to give up things that we want. We have to be nice to people we don't like. Last week's lectionary text says we have to love our enemies. And so I ask, if if you were put on trial, how much of your identity as a Christian is wrapped up in your beliefs? And how much of ourselves are we actually considering to be Christ followers and doing the work of the kingdom? As our band comes up and I offer our prayer, in this smaller setting, I ask that you take the time to consider these things. We're not just rushing out to the parade after this, um, even though some of us might be going to that. We're gonna be here for a few moments where we come to this table. Sit with this word, sit with this scripture, sit with this reality and ask, how how am I doing? (laughs) If somebody would put me on trial to be a Christ follower. Will you pray with me?